Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we were lucky enough to be rejoined by Dr. Janice Pasika. Dr. Pasika is an endocrine surgeon at the University of Calgary, and we asked her to come back on the show after she gave a recent grand rounds for the province of Alberta, talking about stress and burnout, especially in the context of COVID-19. We particularly think listeners will enjoy her discussion about nomophobia. For, for anybody that maybe didn't uh, hear your uh, initial uh, episode with us, we're wondering if you could just refresh uh, where you're from and what your training pathway looked like. So I'm here at the University of Calgary. I'm an endocrine surgeon uh, within the Division of General Surgery. Um, I uh, did my medical school at uh, Western Ontario, um, interned out in uh, Vancouver. I'm old enough to say I interned. Uh, And then uh, I came and did my general surgery residency in Calgary. Then uh, and then worked in the lab for a year uh, with one of the endocrinologists and then uh, did a clinical fellowship with Norm Thompson down at the University of Michigan in endocrine surgery, um, followed by um, half a year with uh, Bertel Hamburger at the Karolinska Institute in endocrine surgery before being recruited back here. And I've uh, made my career here in Calgary. Um, uh, solely practicing endocrine surgery. Thank you again for, for joining us on the show. You gave recently a really phenomenal talk and unique talk about stress, Shirin Yoku, yoga, and other strategies to fight against COVID-19 induced stress. I'm curious what the motivation was right off the hop to give this talk. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, it came from um, my observation. So of uh, what was going on around me, my own personal reflection of what was happening to me personally, and then seeing what was happening around uh, with my colleagues. And, uh, um, you know, the pandemic, it has put unprecedented stressors on us, um, um, you know, right from the get go and continued and who would have thought continued on greater than two years. And uh, what I was feeling personally and uh, was that I was under a lot more stress than I would normally uh, have uh, felt. Uh, we, we work in very stressful job as, as surgeons, um, but this was, this was unprecedented and, and, I, and I felt quite different. Um, and I also observed that many of my colleagues and people within the Department of Surgery in the operating room, um, everything was a little different. Um, and so I then started to try to figure out um, what it was that I was doing and when I was feeling back towards more myself. And uh, it started with uh, knowing that during the height of the pandemic, I would head out into the mountains and out to a cabin um, that I have out there. And, uh, and that's when I could decompress and I could start to feel normal. And, and, and I didn't have all of this stress 
um, sort of encompassing me. And with that, I started thinking, well, maybe it's, you know, being out in the fresh mountain air, maybe that's what's uh, making things less stressful for me. And that got me looking at a whole host of things that help reduce our stress and into a body of literature that I didn't even know existed. And the impetus for for putting it together and presenting it is I really just wanted, um, I think we, to remind everybody that for us to take care of our patients and to take care of our families, we, we need to stay healthy. And uh, this, we needed to address this. Um, and I was hoping that by giving that presentation, it would stimulate some of the people in the audience to, to rethink of what they do and how their lives have changed and what they could do to make it less stressful. For, for some of the listeners that, you know, obviously didn't see the talk, Dr. Pasika, can you define for us what subclinical Cushing's disease is and how it relates to, to, to what you're, uh, you're referring to? And in particular, I was wondering if you could go a little bit deep where you, you know, you talked at length about hair cortisol levels and, and changes measured after COVID and that whole uh, domain was fascinating. Yeah, so subclinical Cushing's, I mean, I think we all know what Cushing syndrome is and the, and the uh, phenotypic uh, manifestations of uh, excess uh, cortisol with the buffalo hump and the central obesity and uh, etc. But in mild autonomous cortisol secretion, or what's called subclinical Cushing's, this is a disruption of the hypothalamic pituitary axis so that there is a higher level of cortisol that's being autonomously secreted, but the patient or the person themselves does not have the clinical manifestations of Cushing's. It's a biochemical diagnosis. And we started to see it. And as surgeons, we make that uh, diagnosis um, in the uh, biochemical workup of adrenal incidentalomas. So they all get screened for function and 20% of adrenal incidentalomas will have autonomous cortisol secretion. And yet the patient does not look Cushinoid. So that uh, has, um, that has morbidity. Um, with that Bit mild autonomous cortisol secretion, you've got higher, uh, you got hypertension, there is increased obesity, dyslipidemia, um, cardiovascular disease is higher. Um, and so it has morbidity, and therefore should be treated. And as surgeons, if they had an adrenal lesion, we would take it out. So I then flipped it on to if we have this mild, if chronic stress is another means of um, breaking through our normal acute stress response. In other words, we get cortisol resistance, and now we have a baseline elevated cortisol, and we have autonomous cortisol secretion above and beyond what we should. Uh, what happens there um, is, was the pandemic um, enough of a chronic stressor for all of us um, to um, produce this in us by causing cortisol resistance. And so 
I looked at data that showed that pandemics and epidemics are a stressor in healthcare workers. And, and that's been a lot of literature right uh, about that increased anxiety, depression, substance use during pandemics and, and epidemics throughout the world. Um, and then look specifically at the COVID pandemic and um, try to see if there was any evidence that there was a higher level of cortisol, which is really called the stress hormone in, patient, in uh, healthcare workers um, living through and dealing with the pandemic. And one of the studies that I found was looking at hair cortisols. And the beauty of hair cortisols is that... Um, you can measure retrospectively. So when your cortisol levels are elevated, um, it's in your hair, and then it stays in the hair. And so looking at segments of hair that would have grown during the pandemic, and comparing them to segments of hair before the pandemic started, you can look and see if there's a difference in cortisol. And this one study from Slovenia did show that health, um, it was on nurses had a higher level of cortisol levels in the segments of hair um, that was, was growing during the pandemic versus the retrospective segment of hair um, af, um, that was done before the pandemic uh, it even started. And that really was the, the body of literature that told me, yes, this is a chronic stress uh, problem and we probably all had a degree and probably still do have a degree of autonomous cortisol secretion, but it's not manifesting as a, we're not looking cushionoid. It's manifesting by uh, the higher cortisol levels and the cortisol resistance is um, then allowing more cytokines to be released in the body. And those cytokines, interleukin-2, uh, TNF-alpha are affecting the hypothalamus. That's causing anxiety. That's causing depression. They are increasing our, our, our hypertension because of the mineral corticoid effect. Um, and uh, yeah, I think having a physiological effect on us. I, I, really, I think you made that you presented such kind of compelling data to support I think what many uh, healthcare care workers around the world have really been feeling. Um, and I thought that was a pretty powerful demonstration uh, of that ex lived experience. You, you then went on in your talk to talk about a number of strategies for actually combating stress. And again, this was fascinating to me because uh, you presented some really compelling data again to support a number of these different uh, strategies. Could you talk a little bit about some of these strategies, some of which I'd never heard about, like, um, I hope I'm saying it right, Shinrin-yoku, um, but can you talk about a little bit about yoga, Shinrin-yoku, and, and green space? Yeah, sure, but remember, you know, Amir, you can find in the literature things to support your hypothesis, right? So, I mean, I found it, um, and and that's the, the data that I gave you, and uh, I didn't give you data that disputed it. So, um, but it, yes, it is compelling when you go down that route. Um, so what I looked specifically for were non-medical ways of decreasing cortisol. And there actually is 
a whole host of literature um, on um, stress reduction using non-medical means. And uh, the ones that I presented uh, was uh, uh, yoga was one of them. And, and yoga is, um, has been shown uh, to decrease our um, uh, interleukin-6 increase our brain derived uh, growth factor, which uh, increases our neuroplasticity. Um, and uh, so it had and decrease our cortisol levels after going through programs of uh, yoga. And many of the studies are taking patients or subjects that are under uh, uh, a great deal of stress, putting them through a 12 week program of yoga, and then measuring um, before and after. Um, Shindi Yoku is, uh, it's a, it's a Japanese tradition, and it translates into what's called forest bathing, and literally going out into the forest, and being surrounded by nature, excluding the uh, uh, completely away from any urban sounds and environment. And uh, this is a longstanding tradition of the Japanese and has been uh, studied extensively showing it decreases blood pressure, diastolic pressures, uh, decreases heart rate. And when looking specifically at salivary cortisol levels, it will decrease one's cortisol levels compared to um, going on a, a walking in an urban environment. Um, and, uh, and so, and the other one was green space. So then not everybody can get out into an urban environment and there's a lot of places in the world that don't have access to that. So what about just being able to walk in the park or um, dig in your garden or take the dog for a walk in a, in a park? Um, uh, can what there's are called green space uh, exposure, can that decrease the cortisol levels? And there's a lot of data on that. And that uh, literature really is one that urban planners are using. And it's compelling enough, um, although it's, it, it, it has a degree of heterogeneity that it's not as clear and crisp as some of the other studies, but the overall concept that green space is important to us in decreasing our stress levels, um, urban planners should, uh, are using that data so when they build a community, there is green space that is rolled into it. And I think it, during the pandemic, I think uh, when we then had to be isolated and we weren't allowed to go anywhere, I think a lot of uh, uh, people that lived in apartments and didn't have uh, a backyard to sit in really then crave for the ability to be in a green space and walk around because it has a calming effect on us. That's uh, so interesting. You know, all those strategies in particular are, uh, I think, pro probably unique to, to individuals in terms of, you know, what they pursue and how they achieve that, that end goal and that target that you're talking about. You talked a, a fair bit about um, the impact of yoga in particular in your life and, and how you use that. Uh, and of course, your cabin, as, as you mentioned, I was wondering if you could just uh, reflect on, on the yoga side of things in particular as a surgeon and how that intersects. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I took up yoga when I started uh, running um, and training for half marathons and, and recognized I needed to keep uh, flexible 
I was not, uh, you know, it was sort of kind of poo-pooed yoga um, for what I knew about it um, up into that point, but walked into a yoga studio um, that was yoga for athletes was the, was the type of uh, yoga it was, and, and then got um, completely hooked on it in the sense that I soon recognized not only did it help uh, with uh, increasing flexibility in my running, but it was invaluable to me after a long day in the operating room. Um, we work in a non-ergonomic environment and uh, then starting and getting into yoga to help take away the stress in the back of your neck and in your arms and from standing in one place operating all day was just invaluable. I crave for it after a long day in the operating room and still do to this day and recognize if I go a week without taking a class, how, how different I feel. Um, so if I could, you know, encourage I, I, the residents all hear this, I, I, if I could have taken this up as a resident, um, I think uh, that would be my one advice is to, as surgeons, you need to, you need to do something like this. It also, yoga is really interesting because uh, for those of you that, that have practiced it, you recognize that it also incorporates uh, the strategy of mindfulness, which uh, is, a, is a way of just putting your mind into the present. And um, that in itself has been shown to decrease stress. So learning that technique um, all, I think also is invaluable as surgeons to really have a, a way of tuning out all of the clutter and things that are going on um, in our lives um, after a long day in the operating room and being just present for yourself. Um, invaluable, invaluable, certainly to me. You know, one of the other things that you you talked about, which fits so nicely in this uh, in this pathway, uh, was nomophobia. Can you define for our audience what nomophobia is? I thought that was just awesome. Yeah. So again, uh, one of the other things, you know, in my hypothesis that when I was out at the cabin, um, that's when my stress levels went down and and I felt more normal. Was uh, the cabin has no access to the internet. Um, I have no cell reception out there, no TV, no radio. So I'm completely disconnected. And so I, I thought, okay, maybe it's the disconnection when I'm disconnected from, uh, uh, from my phone and, and, and the electronic world that we live in and be, um, it was decreasing my cortisol levels. And so I tried hard to find data to support that, um, but I couldn't find it specifically for cortisols. But interesting, I then ended up learning about nomophobia. Nomophobia is the fear of being without a working smartphone. And it's a true phobia. It uh, was described in 2015, and it's on the rise. Um, so this is, a, um, uh, it was, I think, uh, like two years, three years ago, before the pandemic, it, uh, 
moderate to severe nomophobia was found in just over 50% of the population and less than 3% of the population um, don't mind being completely disconnected or enjoy being disconnected off their phone. Um, but now it's on the rise. So it's over 65% of the population have moderate to severe nomophobia. And it's also been shown because you can measure the degree of nomophobia in an individual with validated tools that if you suffer from severe nomophobia, you're 14 times higher of having problematic internet use. And that means uh, gambling, distracted driving, um, uh, getting on the wrong websites and going down a pathway. Um, so uh, it's, it's an interesting um, phenomena because we need that connection. We need to be connected. Our world now depends on it. And certainly during the pandemic, without it, we would have been more socially isolated because this allowed us to, um, while we were in lockdown, be able to still communicate with family and friends and, and stay connected, work from home, uh, continue uh, to uh, uh, function in a way. And yet if we um, uh, suffer from severe nomophobia, it's now become a pathological um, obsession with your phone. And uh, it's interesting that professionals are more at risk of moderate to severe nomophobia. There was one study that showed that our medical students, 80% suffered from moderate to severe nomophobia. And I think, it, you know, you can look around, you can walk downtown, or you can just, you know, walk outside, and you can see people not enjoying being outside, but looking at their phone and recognizing we're becoming too dependent on this connection, in my opinion. It's not a problem unique to medicine or unique to surgery. I mean, if you, if you really want to think about it in a philosophical way, Blaise Pascal said uh, that all of humanity's problems stem from a person's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And so, so really, in some ways, we're, we're dealing with something that is a worldwide global phenomenon that affects all of us. And, you know, you listen to the talks given by Facebook ethicists or Google's ethicists, and they, they talk about the fact and the way that phones are designed to actually keep you hooked to them, right? So they, even when it, when it comes to the color of the notifications, um, and so one of the things that, for example, that they talk about is if you, if you make your phone grayscale uh, without colors, that actually uh, helps you to, you know, not feel the need to actually go on your phone all the time. But, but the point that I'm trying to make is that th these things are designed in that way to keep you hyper-engaged and connected. And so I wonder what your thoughts are about surgeons trying to deal with what is a worldwide global endemic problem and do we do we really even have a, a, a chance in in trying to fight against this nomophobia i guess in some ways like as you mentioned we're one of the few professions that actually have the ability to go into the or and just actually turn everything off uh but i'm but i'm wondering and i'm curious what your thoughts are as surgeons how we how we battle against the kind of the hyper connectedness and, and inability to just be present in the moment 
And do we even have a chance? Yeah, good point. And I think what we have to do is, um, you know, we have to be aware of it um, to be able to um, change, right? So we have to acknowledge it and then and then start to look at strategies if we're going to change it. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, surgeons, you know, when we're in the operating room, we can be disconnected. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we make up for it when we come out of the operating room, we're multitasking, right? You're on the computer, you're on your phone, you're uh, phoning patients, families, um, dealing with emails, and putting in orders, etc. So it's, it, it, it appears that it's here to stay, we have to, you know, it's, it's part of our world. But what we have to do is we have to balance how we use the internet at work with our leisure time. And, and we have to um, be very cognizant of uh, not um, always being connected. Um, there are studies to show a better quality of life if you could contain your work time internet use to less than 28 hours a week. Um, uh, but also at the other extreme, if you had no access to internet at work, um, you also had a poor quality of life. So having some connection is important. And then how we use it in our leisure time. And, and I guess that comes down to um, you do have to disconnect. If you want to practice mindfulness, if you really want to go out and practice Shindi Yoku and be out in the forest, you, you shouldn't be walking in the forest looking at your phone or chatting and, and, uh, um, and FaceTiming people while being in the forest. You should be enjoying the forest. So I think for me and, and what I wanted to get out of that message is just um, we have to be cognizant of it. We have to then say, you know, once in a while, it's okay to disconnect and, um, and we shouldn't be penalized for disconnecting. Um, and it, it can be stress in, inducing to those that really depend on it. But I would challenge every surgeon that's listening to this, try it. Try to disconnect for one day or for um, six hours on a Saturday and just put the phone away and, and, and start to enjoy the simpler things in life. Um, it, it, it really is. I find it to be very helpful. Um, I just worry that if we're not cognizant about how much we use the phone uh, or the, the connection, that it will change how we see and interact with the world. I mean, a, a good example um, is, uh, you know, I could have a dinner party at the house and we're having a, a casual conversation and, and somebody says, yeah, but who, who wrote or who said this quote? And inevitably, a couple of people will go into their phone and immediately Google it and answer the question and the conversation's over. We have that same conversation up at the cabin. There is no way to Google it. People may try to reach for their phone, but now we have to have a conversation. We all have to start thinking about it and then putting our thoughts together to come up with the answer of that question. And um, it's just a much more enriching social interaction um, for us to have a conversation that doesn't end because somebody looked it up and answered the question right away. Yeah, it's such a great and, and honestly thoughtful um, anecdote. Uh, it's interesting to, to think about. 
I, I want to put you on the spot just a little bit here, Dr. Pasika. You, you know, some of the strategies and things you're talking about obviously are sort of medium to extended intervals. So taking a day, trying to be mindful, taking six hours, as you said, get, you know, give it a try. But I'm curious, you know, recognizing that each day, obviously, in your practice is different. You do general surgery call in addition to a busy endocrine practice. But what are some of the little um, daily uh timeouts or strategies that you use maybe in between things or at the beginning or the end of your of your typical day like how do you actually mechanize um, uh, this philosophy on a sort of a daily or at least try it on a daily basis yeah and that great question Chad and everybody has to figure out ways uh, and adapting it for their own life and 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 their other commitments outside of uh of surgery and and I uh, you know I'm no expert at it um, but constantly trying so one of the the things that I did is I took my uh, Alberta Health Services email off my phone so my phone does not connect to my work email and therefore I've restricted my work email I have to be in the office yes I can get it at home and you know I can log in and and do all of that if I have to and I do that occasionally on weekends but um it I, I sort of separated it so work is email I will answer those when I'm physically at work and if you need to get in touch with me uh Chad you know how to use my personal email and and that will come to my phone so that that's one thing. I I was very I was very bad at um, uh, spending weekends coming in and writing and and doing research in that in my office um, and giving up you know a Sunday afternoon Sunday evening to do that and so I've stopped doing that. Um, if I'm not on call, um, I try to avoid the office at all cost and. Um, and if I do have to, you know, work or write a paper or, you know, um, do something, I can't, I, I can connect it and do it at home, but that's a, a less stressful, a little bit different environment. I, um, I, I'm not a very good yoga practicer outside of taking a class and, uh, you know, and signing up for a class. So every week I try to make sure that I, I've booked a yoga class and I've gotten a couple of days of, uh, in the gym. So those kind of strategies, um, become part of, uh, what I do. So, um, I don't know if that completely answers your question. Um, and then, and then weekends away or, uh, when traveling, um, disconnecting and enjoying the moment, um, but you can't do it every day. Things throw, uh, throw a wrench in it. But if you try to be a little bit more disciplined about it, um, at least maybe 75% of the time you're, you're going to be successful. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, it, it, it'll probably look different for, for all of us, um, given our, our different lives and, and demands. But probably the important thing is to to be really thoughtful about it and sit down and put the mental equity into how to make those changes. And then, you know, probably trying them. And if it doesn't work, then, then try another, you know. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, don't try to tra- change everything all at once, or you'll, you'll get stressed. Um, you, you have to take one thing that you're willing to say, I, I think I can sort of try this, or I, I can disconnect uh, on, you know, Saturday evenings, most Saturday evenings, or whatever it is, and, th- and then just try it. And yeah, it's going to be stressful the first couple of times. Um, but then you're going to start to enjoy the benefits of it and seeing um, how it allows you to do other things. Um, and, and that's what it's all about. Uh, we have to stay um, connected. We, we have to stay engaged. Um, and we, but we have to stay healthy um, to care for our patients and to be able to go into the operating room and be at the top of our game every single day. Our patients expect that of us. Um, but not easy to do if you don't have your personal life sort of uh, allowing you to decompress. I'm curious now that you've, you've done this really deep dive and you have your, your whole career to look back on. I wonder if there's things that you wish you had known about dealing with stress uh, early on in your career. Um, like, I, I wonder if there's things that you know now that you wish you would have known early on in career your career and would you have changed anything in terms of how you approach your career and, and dealing with stress? Yeah, you can always reflect back and say, uh, should have, would have, could have, but, um, you know, uh, I don't know if I could say that I would have changed anything cause I've had, you know, my career has been, uh, uh, successful and I, and I really enjoy what I do. Um, I, you know, very, uh, I think, I was always right from as a resident and in into career exercise was very important to me. I, I think that discipline came from being a varsity athlete at Western. And, and so I always, even as a resident, I incorporated my, uh, my squash and my exercise into a busy residency and continue to do that. Um, when you started your career, that started to slide a little bit because all of a sudden you had new pressures. I know the residents don't believe this, but it's it's it can be harder to balance your life uh, uh, once you become faculty because there's other pressures. Um, uh, and I had to revisit that and bring exercise and squash and all of the things, uh, the discipline um, that I learned as a as an athlete back into um, my day-to-day routine. Um, and as I said, I would have taken up things like yoga and, and learned more about mindfulness and how to calm things down um, uh, early, uh, earlier in my career. Um, yeah, there are things that I could have changed, but um, I'm not going to regret anything. Um, but I just encourage everybody to really reflect on being yourself and your personal um, uh, happiness um, is so important to be successful. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.